Well, good morning, Anthem. We are uh, taking two weeks, uh, last week and this week, to focus in on the power of God. Uh, we are doing this right now uh, because this is a time of year when a lot of transitions happen here in Columbia. This is a time of year when we're making a lot of new connections. This is a time of year when probably in your workplace there are new uh, people moving in and people are going leaving uh, right now on campus. Uh, this is a time when students are showing up in town. Columbia is a, a town that's in constant transition, but this is a time of year when a lot of those happen. And so one of the things we want to pause and consider is what does it look like to be intentional with those who we're, we are connecting with in our lives around us because it is no accident who we're meeting who we're coming in contact with, who now is in the cubicle next to us, who's in the classroom next to us, who's in the neighborhood moving in next door. It's not an accident that those things are happening. But God desires that His people would reach out to them, those who don't know Him, and make Him known. And what we're looking at in these two weeks is specifically how we need to have confidence in the power of God in that process. And last week, we, we looked at the need for prayer. And today what we're going to look at are the means that God calls us to uh, in order to experience Him showing up in His power. Here's what I mean. In Scripture, there's this, this image that has developed from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. And it's this imagery of God showing up in fire, showing up in fire. Uh, famously, a lot of you probably immediately think of the burning bush in Exodus 3 when God kind of makes His holy presence known to Moses. He shows up in fire, and it's meant to manifest His holy, His being. And there's kind of this theme throughout Scripture from the, after Adam and Eve, after they're, they're pushed out of the garden, where there's kind of this desire for God's presence, and the whole time throughout Scripture, they're looking for it, and it begins to emerge and surface and manifest in this imagery of fire. And so Moses encounters the fire of God in the burning bush. But then also this is developed when uh, God gives, calls His people to, to respond throughout time and in different societies and cultures to, to respond to Him. And when they respond in the way that He's called them to, He shows up in fire. We see this in Leviticus when, when they first kind of have the law and the sacrificial system when it, it says, Then fire came down from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. God ask the people to respond in a certain way, they do it, and then He comes down in fire. And, and then also when the temple is consecrated, when, when now God's people are a nation and, they, and they, He asks them to build a temple for His presence and they, they, they follow God's commands and they build this temple and then God comes down in fire. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So in all these cases, what happens is God calls His people to some kind of faithfulness to respond to Him in some way. And when they do, then God comes in fire. He manifests His powerful presence in their midst. But what's interesting is then as the Old Testament continues, slowly but surely, the people kind of drift away from following God. The nation of Israel, both as individuals and as a nation, they drift away from, from following God, and, and essentially, after a while, they just go after the other ancient Near Eastern gods, and their faithfulness to God just kind of fades away. And, and if anything, by the time we come to 
the time of this passage that we're going to be looking at here in 1 Kings, by the time it comes to this point, it almost seems as if the God of the Bible, Yahweh, would just become a footnote in the history books of ancient religion. But God calls the people to wake up, you could say. He kind of jars them awake. He calls them to something. You could imagine that they're all just wondering, is it even worth it worshiping in this guy? Is it even worth it? Because what had happened was the entire known world of that area was starting to go after these other gods. And God says, I will do a work in your day. He calls them to build this altar. He calls them to, to pack the kindling around this altar, and his fire comes again. God confronts the gods. He defeats the gods. God, God awakens the souls of His people, and He kind of revitalizes the people of God. And you see all around falling on their faces and coming to belief and obedience to God and following Him. The reason why we're looking at this is because I don't think it's anything to strain to say that we are in a similar context today. Everyone knows the stats of the decrease in church attendance, that in the Western Hemisphere, largely now, church uh, belief in God is dropping off, or at least there's a turning to belief in all sorts of other things, ideologies or other sorts of religions. And, and so we find ourselves in a similar day where we're going, is it even worth it? And here's the thing, it's not just the world out there, right? It's like, oh, the world out there, look where it's going. It's also, it's in us. We feel the drift in us. And we wonder, is it worth it? And in fact, is, is it just going to be that at the end of our lives, that this season where it's like, maybe I, I dabbled with Christianity, is that just actually going to become a footnote in my life? Is it just going to become a footnote in the history of our society? But in fact, in every generation, in every society where this begins to happen, what God does is He calls His people to respond. He calls his people to faithfulness. He calls his people to kind of wake up. And he calls them to, as we'll describe it, to pack the kindling to prepare for him to come in fire. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at first the call that God has upon his people, and especially times like today. And then we're going to look at what it means, the confrontation with the gods. Doesn't that sound fun? And then lastly, we're going to look at what does it mean to pack the kindling? What does it look like to prepare for God to show up in his fire? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you. Lord, that in your word, you, we see things that we, we, in our day, we encounter things and we think they're completely new, where they're completely novel, that this is never been a reality, but Lord, again and again it is, and in your word, Lord, you show how you show up in power. And so, Lord, we ask whether this packing of the kindling is in our, just in our own personal lives, if it's in relationships around us, Lord, would you just reveal, Spirit, where we need to be focused, where we need to be intentional, Lord, to prepare so that, Lord, you can come and you can come and fall in our lives like fire. Lord, we desire to encounter you. Our lives are filled with just trying to taste a little bit of heaven and transcendence. Lord, would you meet us? Would you draw near to us? Spirit, would you do this? It's not something I can do by oratory. It's not anything that we can do just by working up the fields in this room. But Lord, it's only something you can do, Spirit. And so would you, through your word, would you make yourself known? Would you come and fire this morning? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, look at verse 17. Again, this is 1 Kings 18 uh, in the Old Testament, and it, it's, it, it, I'm kind of jumping in. There's, there's all the context I could go back into, and I'll try to hit some of it. This is one of the risks of jumping straight into a book in the middle of it. Uh, but it says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Uh, Ahab was the, the, the king of the nation. And, and as the king, he had made it the official policy to follow the ancient Near Eastern god, Baal. You, you heard in, in the scripture reading, some say Baal, some say Baal, I'll say Baal, maybe I'll say Baal, don't get confused, tomato, tomato, it doesn't matter. Uh, but there, these were, it was kind of a pantheon of gods, there were several gods, but these were the primary kind of famous gods of the ancient Near East. And he had, there's a, you can go back to the, the start of chapter 16 if you want to read the context when he became king right at the end of the chapter. Uh, and there's a wife uh, that promotes this God and it becomes kind of the, imagine all the magazines, all the TikTok, all, everything is saying worship and follow this God. Now, here's the thing. The context here of why Elijah has been called to go to him is because there is a drought throughout all the land. All the harvest, they're they're not appearing. There's no rain, and so everything's dying. There's an irony there, and the irony of it is that Baal was a fertility god. Baal was a god who was was known for, he would, would, and and I'll go into in a little bit what like that worship looked like and, and how they went about that, but he promised, if you do as I say, live as I say, live, give me your hearts, give me your attention, give me the energy of your life, then your harvest will always be plentiful. And also fertility, you're, you will always, your womb will always be open, you'll always be able to have children. But here what they see is not only that the harvest is dying, but then because of that, they're unable to even sustain life. There's a deep irony in that. Now, instead of considering whether, you know, you, you go, well, if, if we're worshiping this God and everyone now is following him all the time, you would think that they would, they would kind of go, then maybe this, is the, this God makes false promises. Maybe this God isn't real. But instead, it, it seems like, and, and you could go back and read the beginning of, of chapter 18, that instead of saying perhaps this God is wrong, like he's not real or his promises are false, it's not true. Instead, they kind of rage. It's this raging of going all throughout the nation and saying, and looking and saying, why isn't this working? Who's turning? Is there one person here who's not worshiping God or worshiping Baal? Who's turning the people away from following him? If we could get those people to change their minds and follow, then this thing would finally work. So they rage on and on, and so they were wondering, who's keeping all of the rest of the people, those final few people who haven't bent the knee to the ball? Who's doing this? And that's when their attention turned to Elijah. See, Elijah was a prophet of God. When you hear the word prophet, you might hear somebody who kind of foretells the future, and that's something that prophets do in the Old Testament. But prophetic literature or prophets in the Old Testament not only would foretell the future, but most of what they're doing is foretelling the people of God how to live. So most of what they're doing is not only saying this will come about in the future, but their primary ministry was in their day to be foretelling to the people to say this is what it looks like to turn and live rightly according to what God has called you to. 
So Elijah has been called to this, this prophetic ministry where he's foretelling and he's going throughout the land and he's telling everyone, Baal is false. If you turn to him, then actually your lives will fall apart and look what's happening. It's actually happening. And so as a result, Ahab and the other leaders, they had been seeking to kill Elijah because Elijah was subverting their ideology, their philosophy. And it was keeping some from turning the ball. And they have this term for him. They say, Elijah, you are a troubler of Israel. Now you understand why he's a troubler. Because he's keeping all the people from following after what they're promoting. It's kind of those, fine, you can just worship your God, Elijah, but if you just also bend the knee, if you could just kind of join the crowd, if you could just jump in and, and channel, get everyone else who's following you, and you would just say, follow this God. Just pour out a little bit. Just give a little bit of your energy. Elijah, though, responds in verse 18 and says, he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the balls. Elijah knows that God demands that he would be worshipped alone and that they wouldn't turn to these other gods. And he's saying, I'm not, I've not caused the trouble. In fact, actually, you have. Now, we'll unpack more of these dynamics in a moment, but I want to point out this before we move on. Do you see Elijah's situation here? It's important that we do. Let me be very clear. It's important that we do if you are going to be a Christian in our day, because you will be called a troubler if you speak, if you live according to God's Word. As we've said many times here at Anthem, that it's not so much anymore that Christianity is considered wrong, but in fact, if you follow Christianity, you will be considered bad. That, that at some point in Western history, our, our cult, the kind of society at some point had been kind of rooted in kind of just Judeo-Christian ethics, so everything kind of sailed along together and it was comfortable, and at some point, over especially the last 10 years, those have divided, and now if you live a life that is obedient to God's Word, and you live a life that is obedient to God's calling, and you speak about that, let alone even live that, or refuse to stay silent, you will be called a troubler. If you're a Christian, your life will look different. I mean, just think of how the Bible conceives of gender, sexuality, the role of the family. Just, I mean, just get going there. There are many other topics you can talk about. That alone, just those, is enough to cause issues. But it's not just what we believe about those issues, but how we are to then live the implications of those beliefs. We as Christians are called to speak and think according to God's word, live according to it. In other words, again, if you are faithful at some point, you will be called a troubler. But what Elijah is going to make clear to us is a question to reframe that. You will be called a troubler. It's not a question of if, but when. You cannot run and hide. At some point, it will happen. The question is, is it a trouble worth making? Is it a trouble worth making? I would say it is. In our day, 
Right now we're seeing as, as we kind of divorced our society and, and where we're headed, we've used this image of cut flowers where flowers were planted and they were rooted and then at some point we kind of cut them off and we, we can just live our own way without being moored in some kind of a belief system or anything and over time, over generations, the flowers, we said, will start to wilt. They're wilting. That's why we're riddled with anxiety. That's why it's chaos all around us. That's why you see a mental health crisis, you see political turmoil, you see men dropping out of society everywhere you look. In other words, there is a famine that is beginning in our day, it's just of a different type. And we could, as a society, either recognize perhaps this is the wrong way to go and address, turn from the gods of our day and the promises that they have made or what will happen, and this is most likely, instead, the charge will come, you troubler, if you would just join. Then it will go well. I think as Christians today, we need to take a good hard look in the mirror. Let me say this first, because just like in... Elijah's day, we as Christians are just as much a part of how we got here in our individual lives as a society. No one is blameless. However, owning that, the solution God provides and calls for us to proclaim is clear, which is to proclaim to seek him, live lives of faithfulness, and seek him and ask for his fire to come. We're going to come back and unpack that a little bit more, but consider, again, it isn't a question of whether you are called to proclaim the truths that God has called you to proclaim. If you're a follower of Christ, you are. And, neither, and whether, nor, nor is it a question of whether you will be called a troubler. You will, if you do. Simple. To some, it will be the aroma of life. To some, it will be the stench of death. Paul says. Yet, though that is pretty overwhelming, God shows us the way forward here. He gives us a picture. Last week, again, we saw the demon is in too deep for us, but it is not in too deep for him. God stands ready to act, and he gives us a picture how. Verse 19, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he sets up this confrontation here. So two, the confrontation. Uh, as we saw last week, often in calling us to witness, to share our faith, to speak up, to, to be explicit about, hey, I'm a Christian, what do you believe? Sharing your testimony, sharing the gospel. God often calls it to, us to it just because he's doing a work, just as much as he does a work in those that we're sharing the gospel with, he does a work in us as well usually even deeper. And here we see part of that, what is underneath it, because in all of us, there's this tension and a decision that we have to make. Continue in verse 20, it says, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel, so he gathers them and, and the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. you will end up following something. Again, another, the phrase again is not a question of if, but who, what will you build your life on? What will you follow? And Elijah is saying, who will you follow? 
If you're going to drift, you're going to drift into the ball. There's the silence, right? We all feel that. It says then afterwards that then all the people did not answer him a word. I feel that when I read it and I'm like, and I'm understanding the parallels to our day. And I go, Lord, ah, it's a gut check, right? It's real. Because here's the thing. It's easy when times are easy, right, to be a Christian. When you get all the cultural cachet for being a Christian, you're seen as a good person, you get ahead in your career, you make connections, this is a great networking opportunity, all those things. Like, it's easy. But it's tougher when you lose your job, potentially, can lose friends, can lose followers, lose respect. Elijah gets it, and he makes the consequence of the decision to identify as a Christian clearer than the next verse in verse 22. He can feel it with their silence. And Elijah said to the people, I even, I only, I am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Listen, I see it. The odds are completely stacked against us, is what he's saying. It seems impossible. All the societal weight is moving this way. It's like a tsunami. Why would we stand on the beach and think that we want to just get annihilated? Now, one of the things that maybe right now you're going, how, how, okay, I get this, they're following a ball, but I, I don't know if really I'm in that place. I'm not sure really what that looks like in my life. So what I want to do here is I want to just point out what, some unbelievable parallels between Baal worship and the ancient world and why this maps over a lot of what we would be facing in the church. We as Christians and our soul have to wrestle with today. So the first one is that Baal worship was socially sanctioned. It's a parallel with worship today, with society, and what I'm, in other words, modern Baalism. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, and she had brought it to prominence, and it had become the default belief throughout all of society. Again, all the advertising, imagine every time you're scrolling, like the analytics are saying, like, somehow they're inserting something like, oh, you like sports? What about, like, sports with the ball kind of angle, right? Oh, you like, like, you're looking for cosmetics? This is how ball can make you look good, right? You want to you wanna find a romantic partner? This is where, I don't know why I said romantic partner. It sounds like I'm coming from 1985, but anyways, if you want to find someone, then look, ball can set you up. Ball's a god of love. If you you will just follow him. If you'll just genuflect, if you will just celebrate, if you will bow the knee. Everything in society, it was, everyone's doing it. It was the culturally, societally sanctioned view. It, it was a view that if you, if you went along with it, everyone, you kind of got it to the head of the line. You got the cultural cachet. You got the currency. You got ahead. You looked respectable. In, in today's world, I, I know this sounds very kind of anti-cultural right now, and a lot of times we're engaging, but let's be honest, like where right now is an actual biblical view, like biblical Christianity, where is it promoted? In higher education, where is it promoted? In Hollywood, where is it promoted? It's not societally sanctioned anymore. And so we will feel that pull to go towards the thing that is societally sanctioned and all those ideologies begin to pull at us because it's kind of what everyone's doing. It's easy to get along. But the second parallel is instant gratification. Ball worship, it addressed the harvest. It addressed fertility. If you would just do this, then you will get these specific outcomes, social acceptance. One of the things that's interesting is even today, I feel it where Christianity so often when I'm reading God's word, when I'm talking with others, when I'm just sharing what's going on in my heart, and they, 
you know, kind of giving like some accountability, giving some insights, giving some feedback, holding up a mirror to my life, and they're like, you're expecting instant gratification. We live in an instant gratification world. Christianity is the exact opposite. If anything is delayed gratification, it's literally at the center of it is a savior, a God who says, I came into earth to die, and now I call you to die and pick up the cross and follow me. I don't know how to brand that in today's world, right? You, you can't, like, the PR doesn't work with it. Yet all around us, the modern balls say instant gratification. Then the last one is abundant sensuality. Ball, we have kids here, so I'm going to have to be vague on this, but you'll get it. Uh, Ball was a fertility god, and the acts of worship reenacted fertilization with the gods. Temple prostitutes, Asherah poles. In our day, the dominant views, ideologies, the modern balls, we live in a, we've talked about it being a hypersexualized world. We've talked about not just being a secular world, but a sexular world. Everything seems to be oriented around sex. And it kind of like revs us up. It's everywhere. Everywhere you look, it's like sex, 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 right? And then you're like, don't think about sex. You're like, ah, uh, it's going to be a tough one, right? So you're always being peaked. Your interest is always being peaked. And then right around it, they're selling you something. And so it's so incredibly hard when you live in a society that says you can always have sensual pleasure. Your life, the core of your identity should be defined by the, to the extent you are able to get it and experience it and be unhindered in pursuing it. This idea in the modern world that freedom is actually found from freedom from constraints, and whereas biblically freedom is found from choosing the right constraints. But we feel the pull, don't we? Bible, you read it, and it has almost the exact opposite. It says, yes, sex is for delight, but it says, in the confines of a marriage. Again, it's hard to, it's hard to market it. Perhaps the reason why we're slow to choose, the reason why I feel it every day, every day there's this point, every day in conversations, every day with decisions, actions, behaviors, will I choose to follow God or I choose to follow a modern ball? We feel the tension. It tugs at us. Those dynamics are too, all those things are too numerous to address one by one right now, but Elijah does address them. But here's how Elijah addresses them. He, gives a, he says, let me just give you a picture of the futility if you choose to follow Baal. It starts in verse 23. He says, let two bulls be given to them and let them choose one bull for themselves. So he sets up where he says, you're going to offer a sacrifice. We're going to offer a sacrifice over here. Offer it to Baal, see how he responds. Please God, or come to him with his promises and see how he responds. And so they lay fire, they put no fire to it, they lay the, prepare the sacrifice, and then, uh, and he says, whoever is God answers by fire, he is God in verse 24. And then Elijah said in 25 to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. 
and they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah was mocking them, and down verse 28, said they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. We run and run and run as fast as we can just to keep up, just hoping that the next, again, the next hookup, the next purchase, the next thing that everything around us is telling us, give yourself to it, and you will have untold prosperity, you will have untold joy and happiness, and yet we give ourselves, and we seek it, and we just feel beat up and cut and just laid open and exhausted. No answer. Elijah's saying, do not follow after the balls. Do not follow after the things that are not of the Lord. Because ultimately, this is where it goes. You have to take God at his word. But then he gives a picture of what it looks like if you will turn to God and his invitation. Verse 30, then he says, then Elijah said to all the people of of Israel, come near to me. Come near. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. See, what Elijah's going to do is Elijah calls them together, and he says, let's build an altar. Come near. Again, what Scripture has throughout Scripture is this idea of they had, in our sin, we had to be sent from a holy God from the garden, and the whole time in the Bible, they're going, when will we find his presence? But instead of just, get away from me, the God of the Bible, he's not silent, but he speaks. And ultimately, he speaks by sending his son. This is why in Scripture, the first thing it says about Jesus when he enters into the world is that this is Emmanuel, God with us. The whole point of Jesus coming is that eventually Jesus brings us to the very presence of God. And what Jesus does when he comes is God gives us a new name, like the 12 sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel. What he's doing is saying the fullness, the completion of the identity you are seeking, that all these things are latching on, finding a hook in your soul to grab onto. All of that insecurity, all of that shame, all of that guilt, what he says is I will give you a new name. You are my beloved. You are mine. I want you here. Come near Don't run after all the lies. The whole point of Christianity is that God will restore us, and how does he do it? We actually get a picture of it right at the end of the passage, down in verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, and let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Whoa. It's a picture of why Jesus ultimately came and why he went up on a cross and he went up on the mountain and he fell under the sword and fell under the fire of God so that this judgment here, he says, can be a judgment that falls on me and then I walk out of the grave and if you identify with me, then you will have already borne the punishment and the consequence of your sin because I've borne it. And I will give you my righteousness and you will live as a beloved child of God. 
says, I want you to have that as the foundation that you live your life upon, that brings life and joy so you wouldn't have to be a sheep headed towards the slaughter every day of your life, but he restores us. And here's the thing, that's a, that's a trouble worth making. So back to the initial question, who will you follow, the prophets of Baal or the true prophets? See, this confrontation is not just a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. This is a confrontation with the people of God. It's a confrontation with us. Who will we follow? He says, follow me, come to me, and find life. Trust me. Take that step. In the meantime, if we do, we have a task. Lastly, packing the, the kindling. God calls his people in every generation to what I'll just describe this as packing the kindling in our relationships. Look at verses 32, the second part of 32 on. It says, and he made a trench about the altar. So he said, go and build this, this altar. And as great as would contain two seeds of, flat of seed, this is like liters and liters and liters. That's a huge trench. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. These are massive jugs. And he said, pour four of those on the wood, on the offering. And he does, has them do it up to four times down through verse 35 until the water ran around the altar and filled the trench. It's like a moat now at this point, drenched with water. And at the time of the offering, the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God of Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me that these people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you, may have, you, you have turned their hearts back. Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There is a picture here of how, what God calls us to if we want to see his powerful presence. This is going to be very simple to end. We are called to pack the kindling in our lives and in the lives around us. We live so often, I want the powerful presence of God, I want to know God, and we don't every day pack the kindling. What I mean by that is intentionally building relationships with others who are far from God, being intentional, intentional questions, listening, speaking, demonstrating His love, being present at difficult times, being present in the good times, being bold at times. And here's the thing, I, I know when I talk about that, you go, man, if I, I've tried that, but I fumble and I bumble, you know, all the way through everything I say. Well, here's the thing, God is saying right here, fumble and bumble and just like water, you, it seems like your efforts sometimes make it worse. It seems like it makes it impossible. Like, God, why would you use me? And he says, listen, pour the water on five times, drench your relationships, drench them with your own idiosyncrasies, drench them with saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, because we all do it, I sure do. And, we, and he says, and, but understand, I want you to see that even in those moments, I come with fire. I am the one who brings the power. I am the one whose presence you seek. And if you will just take those steps to pack that kindling, and even when it's just drenched and it seems impossible, you will see me come in power. It 
we have restructured our schedule as a church for a primary person, not so we would just have more discretionary time, so that we would have more space for intentional time. Where things are on Sunday and simplified throughout the week, because we want to build relationships, we want to see the church packing kindling in the lives of those in their neighborhood, their coworkers, their family members, their friends, so that they would build those bridges that eventually God, when we ask him, when he's gracious, comes with his fire. Some of the ways that I would say do this, you know that every revival in history, one of the, the things about it is that the people of God just get creative. So there are a few hallmarks of it. Off the top of my head, there, uh, there's a time of repentance, ident- identifying God like, I've been going after the balls. I, I want to turn my heart to you. What does it look like to pack kindling in my daily life so that my heart would be turned to you? But also there's this time of, of prayer and seeking God and asking him to move. God, would you send the fire? But also Christians just get creative. They find creative ways. So what, what they do is, in, and right now when people are moving into your workplace, what if instead of just kind of going like, here's the new guy, like, hey, new guy, like instead you're just like, hey, anyone who's new, I'll take you out to lunch. I'll, pay, I'll buy you lunch. I'll get to know you, hear what's going on. Do you know how like, hard it is to transition to a new city? Right now, students around you to say, hey, can I take you out to lunch? Everyone's got lunch. It's paid for, whatever. But you take them out. Let's meet somewhere, and you just get to know them. People in your neighborhoods are moving in. Instead of kind of driving by and just kind of staring at them, you know, (laughs) like, do they have kids? Look like they have it together. Do you think he'll mow his lawn? Like, you're, instead of just kind of walking by and kind of like looking at them, instead, like, think about what if in some of our neighborhoods where several of us live, instead we just, on Saturday mornings, it's like, hey, would you be available for a couple hours? We can just go around on Saturday morning and watch from moving vans and help people move in. Here's the other thing. You can start book clubs in your neighborhood. One of the best ways is just to read a a book that just gets into some of the themes, into the weighty things of life. It doesn't have to be an explicitly Christian book. And just ask the big questions of life. Open up those conversations. Be intentional. I have one member here who's telling me they're going to start drinks in the driveway. And I was like, I'll baptize that, right? Like, grab drinks, go to the back. Like, just call them all over. Who wants drinks in the driveway? I got a couple coolers. Like, Guess who says no? No one, right? Everyone comes over and you're just talking about life. Whatever, the people of God just get crave and they want to see God move because they want others to know the joy that they have and not see them just being strung along by the balls. This fall is football. Football is on every stinking day of the week now, right? It's like Friday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, football, 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 right? And we can either get upset about it or we could go, we all like to watch football. So instead of getting upset about it, we could just see it as God providing an opportunity. We could lament it or we could just celebrate it. And I guess you'd say leverage it. That sounds like a bait and switch, but just trying to alliterate. Uh, but see it as an opportunity. The games are coming up. Invite everyone over for the game. You have two and a half hours then to sit and talk about anything. And you just get to know folks and build bridges. Those probably aren't the times you get into super bold, like deep conversations. But in a society racked with loneliness, anxiety, man, is it nice when somebody actually cares. Pack the kindling. It's a trouble worth making. God is asking you, me, we, us today. Who will you follow? It comes with a calling. Pack the kindling, knowing eventually the fire will come. 
And yes, again, even if that means that you'll be called a troublemaker. Why? Because it's a trouble worth making. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And Lord, this, this is this is a very poignant word. It's weighty. Not a lot of space here for the ifs and the ands and the buts. But a confrontation, a, a point of decision. And, and Lord, would you just reveal in our hearts where we're we're not following, we're, we're hesitating, we're going the other way. And Lord, we, we all have this in various ways. And Lord, would you just help us to see this? And, and Lord, not just because that's just the right Christian thing to do, but Lord, that you, we would see how it's leading to enslavement. It's leading to being drugged along with false promises. Lord, would you free us? Would you, would you deepen our understanding if we don't know of what your grace means and how it addresses our shame and our guilt so that that wouldn't be a place where it could latch onto our souls? numbing it, covering it up, escaping it. But Lord, would, would you just come and fire in our lives, and would you, through that, come and fire in the lives of those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.